You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter. If you're not sure where 1 Peter is, it's actually a very easy book to find. It is towards the end of your Bible, just before the book of James. James, and you have 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, that's it. So we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. But before I again, I, I want to mention it is such a privilege for me to be here. I remember Eric Bancroft when I met him some 15 years ago. I listened to his first sermon. I remember where I sat. I remember it very well. I remember praying that someone like him might disciple me. And I was amazed when I began my internship with him. And I was also amazed when I began my internship with him that he said to come to his house early in the morning and bring your tennis shoes and get ready to run. And I thought, what am I going to be doing with, like, am I going to run? Yes, you're going to run. And, uh, but we would run, it wasn't just with Eric, it would be with his wife and his three boys. They would, they would bike and we would run. And I'm just reminded of that as I'm reminded of our pastor being gone because of the priority that he makes with his family. I've seen that for years, so I'm thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for this time and the legacy uh, that he has uh, with this pulpit that he has begun at Grace Church of just faithfulness to his word. So as we begin this morning, we're looking at First Peter. First Peter, we're going to be kind of launching into a book. It's got three themes. The theme of salvation, the theme of submission, and the theme of suffering. And his audience is to those who are suffering or who are about to suffer tremendously. Nero would be the emperor and he was a persecutor of the church, one of the worst that they had. And in those days, 1 Peter, he is writing to those who if they are not suffering tremendously, they are about to. And so he's trying to prepare them. They would have some difficulties. They would have moments of struggle. And it's not um, by accident that in 1 Peter he starts off with the theme of salvation. He doesn't start with submission. He doesn't start to address their suffering. He first starts with the theme of salvation. And the section that we're going to read this morning, I will only cover the first three verses, but we're going to read verses 3 through 12 because it is Peter's doxology. And it is in the Greek one sentence. So the periods we have just help us to take, take a breath. But if you would, follow along with me as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when, the, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look at our salvation. Think about angels, they have seen much, but they long have a longing, they have an amazement, they are in awe over what God has done in sending his son on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, I would ask this morning that you would expand our understanding of the beautiful salvation that you have given to us. It is not by accident that Peter starts with this. It is not by accident that in the midst of their sufferings that he would know what they need, which is to be reminded of who you are. Lord, you are a big God. Help us to see that this morning. Lord, give us eyes to see the goodness of who you are, to, to comprehend the vastness of your blessings that you've bestowed upon us, of hope. And what kind of hope do we have, Lord? But a living hope, a vibrant hope. Would you expand our understanding of that? Would you help us to understand what it means to be in error to be sons and daughters of God and to have an inheritance. Lord, salvation is such a wonderful inheritance. May we rightly appreciate that this morning. Would, if our focus is elsewhere, if we're looking to something else or someone else this morning for hope and satisfaction, would we look to you? Amen. Something weird happened, and sometimes weird things happen. But I remember this day. This was a unique moment for me. It was a normal day, though. It was 5 o'clock. I was finishing up work. And uh, as I normally do, I lock up the, the church, and I walked out, and I went to my car. And um, I noticed that there was someone in my car. I thought, huh. 
Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe this isn't my car. Now look, no, this is definitely my car. My car is special. It is unique. It has been divinely touched by God twice with hail damage. No one else has the pattern on my car that I have. It is the only Camry 2009 that has that many dents designed by God. I have not named it, but it's pretty special. So I think it's kind of odd that someone would just wander into my car. So I get out like my fob and I hit the button and it makes a sound. And I'm looking to see if the person is going to make a reaction. Nope, nope. They're just on their phone, talking away, and they're having a great time. I mean, I don't think Grand Theft Auto was going to take place at the moment when I saw how happy this person was on the phone in my car. But this is weird, and I didn't know what to do, honestly. Is this at a church? There's no one else here. Why is there someone in my car? And so I go up to the front of the hood, and I just, I, mean, I don't know what else you do. I just knocked on the hood of my car like, okay, maybe this will do something. And he's on the phone and he looks at me and he just waves. And, like, and then he just keeps talking in my car. I'm like, okay. I don't think he's getting a hint. So I actually go to my car and I open the door and I say, hey, I think you're in my car. He's on the phone. He's still talking. He looks around though. And he just gets out and he walks away. He doesn't say anything to me. He keeps on the phone call the entire time and just starts walking. Now, I did see off in the distance another Camry, but it did not have the hill damage and there's no reason why he should have been in my car. And he left his face mask for me. <laughs> it was a weird day. But it reminded me of this passage because I think of cars and some people here, you're jealous of my car. You want my car. Uh, I'm not going to trade my car for anything. It's special. Um, actually, if you want to trade for something, uh, yeah, my car's not worth it. Um, but I think of those things. They're things that can be lost and stolen. They're things that if they're not stolen, eventually they break down and die or experience hail damage and rust. And it reminds me of this passage because this passage is articulating not what can be taken, but what can never be taken away. And it is held by the Father who guards our salvation. He secures it. There is nothing more secure than our Heavenly Father and the grip He has on not only our salvation, but all the blessings that he grants us. And in this text this morning, we're looking at just three verses from this doxology. But what we're going to find is that the blessings, the big blessings that God has given us cannot be taken away. They are completely secure. And they are completely secure because of the God behind them. I think blessings aren't blessings if you don't get to keep them. But the blessings that we have, that God has, we get to keep. And this text is going to articulate for us the big blessings 
that the Father bestows on us. Within this doxology, there is the first half is focused on the Father, the second half is the Son, and the last half is on the Holy Spirit. And both past, present, and future are all addressed. It is a doxology where the gospel is articulated. It is where Peter is overwhelmed with the hope of the the living hope he has in God, and he just praises God in adoration. And he writes this one long, very long sentence of praise. But it's in the first three verses that he gives us some big blessings. So we're going to see three blessings this morning. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. Why is it so important that we have a salvation that is kept safe and secure? Why is that such a need of ours? I think it is a significant need because doubt and fear creep in often. I think especially in times of suffering. And Satan would love for us to live in fear and doubt our secure blessings found in God. And God's own character Incompetence would be in question if he could grant blessings but not allow us to keep those blessings. But what we're going to see this morning is that the blessings he bestows upon us, they're secure, they're guarded, they are given, and they are given by him and by a work of his and not a work of our own. Now before we turn and look at these first three verses I want you to turn to Exodus 14. This actually sets up our text pretty well. Exodus 14. This is as Egypt, the Egyptians are are chasing Israel, God's people. And verse 10 of Exodus, if you're not sure where it is, this is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Chapter 14, verse 10 it says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? And the reality was what had happened here is that Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians. And Israel is saying, okay, did you just bring us out here to die? Did you deliver us, Moses, just to die in the wilderness? Wouldn't it have been better had we have just been able to serve them but at least live and keep our lives? And as they're staring and they're seeing the army that is about to come and attack them, they are afraid. And doubt creeps in. They don't believe that they're going to keep the blessing that God had in store for them. So they fear. And if you look at verse 13, Moses says to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. And then look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. 
I would underline that. That to me is worthy of underlining. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. This sets up our text well. Edmund Clowney, I have the quotation for you, but he elaborates on this. He talks about this theme of salvation. This is not a new theme. This is even in the Old Testament, a theme of salvation. And what we see here, and he comments, he says that God's salvation was more than his mighty acts of deliverance. He brought Israel out of Egypt to bring them to himself. Salvation meant that he would be their God and they his people. That promise became the ground of the prophetic message. Israel had sinned, but God would do yet a greater work of salvation in the future. He would deliver his people not only from their enemies, but from their sin. Understand, this is what Peter's highlighting for us is the fulfillment of this promise. That God would deliver his people not only from their enemies, but from their sin. And that he's able to do it. Israel wasn't going to look at themselves. They needed to look to God and see what he would do. It's in these verses, there is one sentence of what God has already done. And they tell of how the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, all the the role that they play in our great salvation. So that's what we're going to see. Look at verse 3 in 1 Peter. 1 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts off with this sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand that everything else in verses 3 through 12 point to this one fact. Who gets the credit for this salvation that we have? It is God. Blessed be who? Is it us? Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These four words, blessed be, sometimes they're translated praise be to. They usually refer to a a person or a thing that is well spoken of. And in the Old Testament, that's how it was referred to. But in the New Testament, something changes. Anytime the word blessed be is there, it is a reference solely to God and God alone. Hebert writes, when God blesses men... He confers blessing on them, making them blessed. Whenever men bless God, they declare that he, in his infinite excellence, is infinitely praiseworthy and express their celebration of what he is and does. The devout heart readily eulogizes God. This is what Peter's doing. This is a eulogy. This is a doxology. His devout heart is praising God for what he has done. This is what he has done. He is in complete awe. This is why we often remember the doxology. This is why we sing it so often. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's Trinitarian. It urges all heaven and earth to praise God. It identifies God as the one and only source of real lasting blessing. And it's this text that we see the big blessings that God has bestowed upon us. In particular, these three verses from the Father that make our future life the best life. Now look at that phrase in verse 3. Notice how he makes us his. This is our first point for this morning. That he makes us his. It's according to his great mercy that he makes us his heirs. God reveals himself through his son Jesus Christ and God demonstrated his mercy towards us by causing us to be born again through the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross not only took on our punishment, but he also grants us the righteousness of Christ. It's not enough simply that he would pay for the punishment of our sin. He, we also need his righteousness, and he grants us both, covers our guilt and our shame. MacArthur rightly uh, helps us understand the difference between mercy and grace, that mercy removes our misery and covers our punishment, but grace removes our guilt and covers our sin. And it's here that we see he made us his by his mercy. It is according to the mercy of God. And this speaks to who our God is and how he makes us his. It is by his mercy. Some of you go, I think this is really simple, Trevor. Why do you keep reiterating the same thing? Because it is so easy for us to start off understanding theologically in our minds, understanding the fact that Salvation is a gift of grace through faith and according to the mercy of God. And then we functionally act as if it is by works and practically live out our lives and go, I'm only in right favor with God and I only pray to him when I'm actually living in accordance to him. And when I sin, I feel like I need to hide rather than run to him. We need to fundamentally understand that our salvation and this gift of mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This would not be possible apart from the resurrection that we have been born again. This is the new birth this is what John 3 was all about, as the language with Nicodemus. You must be born again. It is a verb picture that is being described to us. The baby doesn't take credit for being born. Someone else did the delivery. Someone else deserves the credit here. This is a verb picture. It is not something that we do. It is something that has been done to us. This is new God-given life. And the blessing here is that we are made his by his mercy and mercy alone. And therefore, we're his heirs. And we possess a living hope. So not only has he given us 
mercy and made us his heirs. But secondly, he has given us hope. He has given us hope. And not just any hope, but a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living hope has the very life of God. This is a hope that the world can't offer us. This living hope adds to the security of our eternal life. We have to understand what it says here, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. If there's no hope, there's no heaven. And that means there's also no forgiveness and no fellowship with one another because what unites us but the gospel? What kind of a hope do we have? We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. If you would turn to Ephesians 2, I want us to see this illustrated for us as it really highlights the fact that Christ resurrection and it proves how Jesus has conquered sin and death for us. Ephesians 2, 1 starts off with and says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then it's in verse 4, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. There we have it, the resurrection reminding us why, ha- why is it that we can have hope after death? Because if Christ was raised and we are united to Christ, then we too will rise. And not only that though, not only does it talk about us being raised up with him, but it says seated us with him. So there's an inheritance to this. Not only a living hope, but an inheritance Notice the the parallel here to a living hope and to an inheritance that is emphasized also in 1 Peter. And it's emphasized here in Ephesians 2. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. This is where we see sin's power defeated. The Christ defeated sin and death through the resurrection on the cross. And further, another blessing that we see here is that we're raised and seated with Christ, removed not only from us sin's power, but one day he'll also remove the very presence of sin. Through the resurrection of Christ, these are profound words. So we have a living hope, we have an inheritance though. I think about having an inheritance. Can you imagine if along Musk or Bill Gates or Mark Cuban, you had an inheritance and that was the inheritance that one day you would receive? I was looking at a list of the most wealthy individuals, thinking Warren Buffett as well, just others, And I was thinking, huh, throughout history, we don't continue to see the same people. The last names, I mean, unless they've all changed their last names, eventually their wealth fades. Nonetheless, 
Once we die, our wealth is gone. So what kind of an inheritance do we really want? Do we want an inheritance that is of this earth? Note the description in 1 Peter. The inheritance is described as one that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It's timeless. It can't be spoiled. It can't be stained by sin. It is kept in heaven for you. It is not one that you earn. It is one that has been given to you. So not only are we his, but we have hope of an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. And it can't be taken away. One study Bible references this word imperishable. And it refers to it in the secular Greek where really something that was imperishable, it describes how an invading army would plunder or just wreck a city. And, and so the idea here is that no one and nothing can take away our inheritance. No one can touch the inheritance that God has kept for us in heaven. And look at verse 5. We're going to see not only that he made us his, that he gave us a living hope and given us an inheritance, but we're going to see that he has secured us a place with him. He has secured us a place with him. This might be my favorite verse in all of this, because I am keenly aware that if it is up to me to maintain my salvation, eventually it will be gone. But verse 5 reminds me it is not of my own power. Look what it says. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's in verse 5 we see Heaven is secure for us. And notice too what it says, for a salvation ready to be revealed. Do you know your salvation is ready? Sometimes we think of our salvation as something that is still a work in progress and our inheritance is one that's still a work in progress. If only there wasn't a uh, shortage in the supply and demand, God could finish the work he needs to have done in heaven. But he's still waiting on a few people to do some labor, still needs a few supplies. He's just kind of waiting on it to be done. But one day it'll be finished and then we can go home. It's actually this text here says it's ready. It's referring to the fact it's ready to be revealed. We're not waiting on anything, but we are waiting for his perfect timing. And it isn't the last time. But our salvation is being guarded through faith. I have a question for you. How many of you have a, a bird feeder? So I just want to know. I'm, I, I, yes, I, I've lived in the Midwest. I'm just not sure if it's a thing that you guys still do out here. 
Um, but I see a lot of squirrels. There are some birds. There's more iguanas. I don't know if they eat the birds or what it is. But um, during the pandemic, we were in Nebraska, and you just have a lot of time on your hands during the pandemic. Um, working from home, we started naming birds in our area for real. Uh, and so my wife wanted a bird feeder and some free entertainment for the kids. So I go to Ace Hardware, I'm looking for the birds. And uh, I, I realized like there's quite a selection for bird feeders. Like there's not just one, there's many of them. And the advertisement really is all around squirrels. You guys have a ton of squirrels. I ran around here the other day. Every time I saw a squirrel, it had something really big in its mouth. There's a reason why there's advertisement on the bird feeders about squirrels. So I didn't buy just any bird feeder. I bought the best one I could find that looked like Fort Knox, okay? Because this is for the pandemic. I need this thing. I want something that's going to work. So while I'm looking for the best one, I purchase it. I bring it home. I set it up. It said on the label, squirrel proof. Didn't say it would deter them. It said squirrel proof. It had this mechanism where like the bird feeder's here and where the, the bird sits on the perch. If there's a lot of weight, it just goes like this. And then it's supposed to seal off any seed from coming out. So it's supposed to be a win. Okay, so I hang this thing. I fill the whole thing up full of bird seed. And it was wonderful. The birds loved it. But then one day, squirrels are sneaky, they're sly, and they're smart. And I don't like them. And uh, I was watching this take place. I truly think that if Satan could not have had a snake, as he should have done the squirrel. Second most crafty creature of all is the squirrel, in my opinion. That's not the Bible, but it's my opinion. So... But anyways, the squirrel climbs up onto my bird feeder, and he does. He goes on the perch part, and he falls and knocks his head. And I was like, yes, this bird feeder is awesome. And I'm thinking, this is secure. Keep the seeds, you know, secure. Keep them secret. Keep them safe. This is good. And so I watch this. He can't get to it. Next time, what does he do? He gets onto my bird feeder and he shakes my bird feeder and all the seeds fall down. I'm like, this is, this is false advertisement. This is not safe. This is not secure. Question I have for you. Is your hope, if seeds are hope, is your hope secure this morning? Is your hope secure? What are you putting your hope in? Are you putting hope in your health, in your wealth, in the things of this earth that are going to perish and fade? Are you putting your hope in a relationship that you think might blossom and become something? Where is your hope this morning? The beauty of our salvation is, is it is secure and is guarded by our Heavenly Father. And if your hope is in him and set rightly upon him and in your salvation, then you should know it is secure. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, 
Peter wants you to know that no matter what comes at you in life, your salvation is secure. And when suffering comes, that becomes really important and really real. And the, the part about this text that's sweet is that God's big blessings are secure. Now notice the blessings that God does not talk about. He does not talk about how he's gonna make you wealthy. He does not talk about how he's gonna preserve your health. He does not talk about having a problem-free life or that you're guaranteed to have the best marriage ever. He doesn't guarantee those things. The blessings of this text is that you have a living hope in your Savior, Jesus Christ, that you have a real salvation, and your salvation is your inheritance, that one day you get to bask on the glory of God and enjoy him for all eternity. Is that where your hope is set? There is false hope that the world will sell you. First Peter really gets us to gaze at what's true hope. And looking at that, this completes Peter's big blessings. And I hope you see how this points to the one behind them all. It is by the Father's mercy that we're made his. It's by the Father's gift of grace through his son Jesus Christ that we have hope. It is by the Father's power that we're guarded through salvation that our place with him in heaven is forever secured. Edmund Clowney writes this about hope. He says, our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. And our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.